Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. And today, we uh, we might be a little bit of a shorter episode than most. I don't know. It's late. And by the time this posts, you'll know that I've been busy wrapping a show that I just finished filming. And whenever I'm in work mode, it's it's a little difficult to stay as consistent as I would like. So I appreciate you guys sticking with me uh, and being patient and understanding that uh, we all have day jobs and we've got to. In this case, the captain's got to bring the ship into harbor. So I thought we would do – we got some really great questions this week. And I wanted to spend a little extra time on them than usual. But before I get into the questions, I wanted to first, of course, give us an update on our Supreme Witch Tournament, which has been raging on. We've gotten great fan participation. Um, the feedback that we've been receiving is awesome. Really appreciate it. And I, my hope is that by the end of this tournament, we will determine which witch movie is the most supreme of all the witch movies. And we can't do that without you. So, as always, make sure you check the Monday post on Slasher. If you're listening today, the day that this is released, it's just got put up there. It's awesome. They did a great job of stylizing the photo. You can go to our at Grindhouse Podcast Instagram, check our stories daily. We'll put up the the uh, the two movies to compete against each other. You can vote on a poll, and at the end of the week, we'll tally up all the numbers. All of your vo- votes count, and we will determine which 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 movie moves on to uh, advance in the tournament. So. Without further ado, let's get into what has actually been our closest uh, competition to date. We had uh, two, what you might call, I guess, kids movies or maybe movies from uh, our childhood when we were younger. Uh, Hocus Pocus, which is an all-time classic Disney film. And also uh, uh, an animated film, an anime from Japan called Kiki's Delivery Service. And... The audience has voted, and Hocus Pocus advances by one single vote. It won 65 votes to 64 votes, so super close. And, um, you know, you know, I, when I picked Kiki's, I was a little unsure. You know, I don't know that a lot of our audience maybe is as well-versed in animation. We don't talk about animation nearly as much, certainly like even anime, really. But um, it is a great movie, and it, and it felt like a good first-round competitor to Hocus Pocus. And uh, obviously, there there were it has fair share of fans, so um, it does not move on, but it can live on in your heart. In the meantime, Hocus Pocus will, and we'll move on to our next challenge, which is also in a totally different way, kind of a throwback from these great movies of the 80s so this week's competition is uh the witches with angelica houston versus the witches of eastwick with jack nicholson both amazing films if you've not watched them I, if nothing else you know for those of you who are still in quarantine who aren't forced into working like some of the rest of us take this opportunity to go back and revisit some of these amazing films that you may have forgotten or maybe you haven't seen them in a few years or maybe you just need a good excuse to like 
get out of the general COVID malaise and get yourself interested in, in the Halloween season, which is coming before you know it. It will be here. We're almost well halfway through August. Summer is nearly in our rear view. We're going to start sliding into September. I mean, if we live in California like I do, it's going to still be hot. But for some people in the country, the leaves will be turning. You'll start... You start seeing PSL, you know, pumpkin spice latte flavored drinks and cookies and whatever other little confections that get made during this time. The weather cools down. You might even pull out that old favorite sweater that you like. And um, even though we are in quarantine still, for the most part, people will, you know, take brisk walks in the, in the cold, cool, autumny season. And what better to get you excited for that than to you know, go back and watch some of the classic, classic witch movies that have entertained us for many, many years, my whole life, many people's whole life, and even before that. So make sure to be involved. If you have an opinion on the witches or the witches of Eastwick, check out the Slasher app. You can vote under their post. Well, check out the Slasher uh, Instagram page and also their app but check out their Instagram page you can uh, vote right underneath the post and then the rest of the week you can vote on our at Grindhouse Podcast Instagram check the stories vote on the poll and let us know which movie that you think between the witches and the witches of Eastwick is the most supreme witch movie at the end there can be only one so uh, before we get into the audience questions, which I'm really excited about, I want to touch on a show that I feel is criminally underrated. It's a show that I, I just sort of happened upon. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I have a, a real, uh, beyond just a, a genuine interest, but a, a, an involvement and a practice of ceremonial magic and, and Thelema and um, in doing just sort of, gen- you know, what basically what led me to this show was I thought, you know, the, the, the person, Alistair Crowley, has such a fascinating backstory, you know, beyond just what you read in sort of propagandist papers and things of that nature. Like if you just read the story of the man, it is an extraordinarily wacky, weird cult of personality. And I thought, why has there not been a movie made about Alistair Crowley yet? And so... I did some research, and it looks like there's some low budgety ones that have kind of been made. But um, Ag- Angus Angus Faden, who you may know as Robert the Bruce from the Braveheart movie, he played Aleister Crowley in a show called Strange Angel. And I saw that, and I saw the photo, and I was like, "Wow, that he actually that yeah, I could see Angus Faden as like um, as Aleister Crowley. He pulls that off." And so then I started looking into the show itself, and the show is on CBS All Access, which I know maybe many of you, you know, that you get you're filled to the brim with streaming service, you know, Shutter and Netflix and uh, Disney Plus and whatever else is out there. I think HBO Max and and Quibi maybe for all five of you, um, but this this show was on CBS All Access, which I only knew to carry like um, I think they have like Picard. You know, or they have, um, uh, I guess all their stuff's kind of Star Trek related, right? That's sort of their wheelhouse. That's what they're sort of building upon. So I, I didn't even, I had never heard of this. I think in retrospect, I'd maybe seen a poster of it. But the story is, the series is about the, the story of Robert 
of of the story of Jack Parsons, who was who, who was born Marvel Parsons, and this was a show that was originally meant to air on AMC, and I guess AMC after developing it decided to pass on it, ended up on CBS All Access, which actually allowed it to be a little bit uh, more mature in theme. You know, certain things that you could visually show on a streaming service, you definitely would not have shown even on extended cable. But uh, Jack Parsons was a rocket scientist in the 30s and 40s who was instrumental in the being a, a pioneer in rocketry that eventually led us to the moon. And he was also a member of the OTO, which is a branch of the Lima that Alistair Crowley uh joined and then eventually took over and sort of formed in his image. So it's it's a really fascinating, amazing story. It's um, the, the lead actor is the actor from uh, Midsummer who played Christian. And much like his his portrayal of Christian, um, Jack Parsons is a sort of a, a slippery character. You know, he's, he's kind of a bullshitter. He's always got that sort of guilty face, but that's also kind of charming. You kind of know he's lying to you, but you, you want to go along with it. Um, it's really, really great. I, I found it to be just like really well plotted and, you know, engaging with this really, really cool visuals. Um, Bella Heathcote, who you may know, uh, I recognized immediately from the Tim Burton Dark Shadows movie, but it also she was also recently in Relic. Which was, you know, we talked about that a couple of shows back. So it's it's a really interesting sort of juxtaposition because usually, when you think about movies that have to do with, say, the occult, for example, they're all they're all mystics, right? It's all mystical. It's all philosophy. It's um, you know, it's it's magic. Oh, in the in the traditional sense, wizards and robes and wands and things of that nature. So to see magic not only explored in a uh and look it's caveat it is a heavily stylized show and i'm sure it takes many 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 um creative liberties for drama purposes but it looks at magic more in the way that practitioners of it practice it now in particularly the sort of sword, sword world of sex magic. But it does it with a protagonist who's a scientist. Who, you know, this is not just a, a, a wide-eyed believer of this sort of fringy, you know, mumbo-jumbo-y thing. This is a, a man of science, a man of will. And the idea of will is very strong in it. And you can see the correlation between someone who is bold enough to look to the stars and believe that he can reach them at a time when rocketry was looked at like I don't know it was it was it was science fiction it was uh, it was like what reading a comic book it, it didn't have the level of um, scientific uh, interest and respect that you know now of course we have NASA and and uh, you know you've got uh, el the elongated muskrat trying to you know, colonize Mars so that he can, you know, indentured slavery, uh, a slavery workforce there as well. This was long before all those times. This was when the idea of going to the moon was um, reserved for those who had a, a suicide mission. And in fact, at one point, um, Jack Parsons' group of scientists were called the Suicide Squad because, you know, they're essentially building what 
if gone wrong, you know, if you just miscalculate something, you're building bombs, right? I mean, the, the, the amount of force and jet fuel and, and explosiveness that is needed to propel a rocket out of our our atmosphere, you know, again, if calculated just slightly in improperly, is essentially like building a gigantic bomb just mere yards away from you. So these these individuals and, and Jack Parsons in particular, you know, embarked on something that was incredibly, incredibly dangerous and that did not really have the support of the scientific community that, uh, you know, say propelling technology might have had, right? And so it ties in together how Thelema focuses on the manifestation of one's will and the will it would have taken for a self-taught scientist largely to become a leader in an, in a brand new industry that not only eventually led us to the moon, but also really aided us in a lot of the um, militaristic technology advances that helped win World War II, for better or for worse, I suppose, as it were. But like, but that is the impact that this person had. And at the same time that they're doing this scientific breakthroughs, they're ho- they're hosting this sort of communal house in Pasadena, California, where rituals are being embarked and um, free love was being really introduced long before, you know, 20 years or so before the 60s came around. Um, regular use of uh, psychedelics to enhance one's perception of reality like peyote. Like, again, this is stuff being done in the late 30s and 40s long before it was popularized in um, pop music and movies and literature that sort of came afterward. It's even, you know, predating the the um, the beat generation to some degree. So really super at the, the forefront of cutting edge culture that we maybe take for granted now, this was all being done within the confines of this magical order, this sort of magical religion. So it's super interesting. It's only ran two seasons because um, CBS All Access was foolish enough to to cancel the show after two seasons. It does have a satisfying enough ending. And I will say this because I don't want to spoil anything about it. And uh, again, I caveat that there are plenty of creative liberties that are taken. It's very evident. However, um, another interesting tidbit about Jack Parsons was not only was he involved in the OTO and eventually at some point for a brief period took over the what's called the Agape Lodge in Pasadena, the sort of house, this order, the, the, the different various members of like, you know, different uh, race and sexuality. And, um, you know, they were a, a wildly open and accepting group long before it was even remotely counterculture to be so. I mean, this was like forbidden, right? But he he not only was part of this group and at one point led this group, but he also befriended um, one L. Ron Hubbard, who also, at least early in his life, had some interest in magic and ritual. And as we all know, took apparently some of what he learned and went on to form his own religion, which is Scientology which is where we got Tom Cruise, born from the Matrix, the Scientology Matrix. Many people don't know that. Tom Cruise actually was just biologically engineered by Scientology, by the ghost of L. Ron Hubbard, to be infinitely young 
and to make box office movie after box office movie. So if you like Tom Cruise, you can thank Scientology. You know, it doesn't always work perfectly. They also created John Travolta, but that's neither here nor there. Really interesting tidbit of this guy's life, being a scientist, a rocket scientist, and a and a, a, a follower of the Lima and uh, close friends for a brief period before falling out with L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, this is this is prime TV material. So it's it's a real bummer that it it came to a close after only two seasons. I think if a uh, AMC had moved forward with it, or maybe like an HBO Max, or um, certainly Netflix, like I think. The show may have gotten the support and legs it needed to, you know, maybe go three or four or five seasons. I don't know what the budgets are on CBS All Access or whether or not it was, um, you know, it's an, it's an upstart streaming service. So it may have wanted to put its resources behind a more of a proven uh, brand like a Picard and Star Trek and all those things. But it's excellent. It's worth checking out. You can get CBS All Access for seven days for free. So even if you have no interest on any of the shows on there, you know, if you're in quarantine still, if you've got downtime, you can ease at 17 episodes, I think. Like you can easily purge. I would definitely recommend it. It's I could not speak highly enough about it. I think that um I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it four and a half tusk. And I only don't give it five tusk because I can really because you know, having done other research. I've come to realize that it is definitely taking some liberties and, 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 uh, you know, maybe it doesn't make everyone always look in a good light that maybe isn't, um, but you know what? All movies do that. So it's just sort of par for the course. But if you dig rockets and sex magic, this is the show for you. It's called strange angel on CBS all access. They have a free week going. It's excellent. It's two seasons, 17 episode. Do yourself a favor. If you're looking for that new show to watch, this is the show to watch. It is very, 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 very good. There are no bear outfits, even though it's uh, Jack Rayner from Midsummer, but he's an excellent performance all the same. So with that being said, and again, I said this would, might be a little bit of a shorter episode. We're going to just jump straight in to our audience questions, and we're going to hear from you, and I'm going to do my best to answer said questions and hopefully enlighten, entertain, bamboozle, whatever it may be speak to you as you have speaking to me and let's see if we can come away from this conversation just a little bit with a little bit more perspective and uh and learn from one another because that's what this is all about okay first question questions from the correct and from sam v blair which is your favorite dracula so top listener sam Sam is such a loyal, loyal listener to us, and I want to thank him for always participating in our polling, in our mailbag questions, and uh, really, I mean, he's, he's championed us for a very, very long time, both our podcast, um, both this podcast, The Grindhouse Podcast, and also Coffins and Coffee, which I do with my fiance. So thank you, Sam. I really, really appreciate you, and I appreciate your question, and that is, which is your favorite Dracula? And... When you think of Dracula, I mean, there have been, you know, Pelagosi, Christopher Lee. Um, there was the most recent uh, BBC version. There was, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, he's been played by uh, a literary of amazing character actors. Because it is a character that one can, and I wholeheartedly 
intend this pun, sink your teeth into. You know, this idea of this ageless fiend who falls in love. It's, I mean, a lot, of, especially when you look at the, um, maybe less the book and more of the universal versions, there's always seems to be this recurring theme of the outcast, the monster, the creature who falls in love with the fair lady. You know, look at the creature of the Black Lagoon. You look at Frankenstein. You look at, um, or some portrayals of Frankenstein. And you look at Dracula. And so part of that, I think for me, was super appealing. And I think it's, this is true for a lot of people who maybe feel like they're outcast or they feel like they don't quite belong. Or, you know, when I was in school being like the, the, the cool, tall, jacked up dude with like the Ninja motorbike was like, you know, that was sort of the, or, or had the cool F one fifty that dads bought them. That was all jacked up. You know, that was kind of like what the cool kids did. I was none of those things. I had like the sort of broken down beater and I played in violin and orchestra and I, you know, was into comic books and movies and stuff like that. So that's not cool. You know, I didn't really identify with the cool kids. I identified with the creatures, the monsters, right? The outcasts, the ones who were a little off kilter. Maybe those who are a little bit more interested in the macabre than the average person. So I related to Dracula. Dracula was awesome. And who, if you relate to Dracula, doesn't want to fall in love with the girl and maybe get the girl, right? Took me enough years, but eventually I got the girl. And um, so for me then... That that means that my my Dracula of choice can only be Gary Oldman in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. It is, to me, the quintessential portrayal of Dracula. I can watch that movie anytime, at any part of the year, and just marvel not only at at Gary Oldman's performance, which is sublime, but the movie in itself. You know, from his uh, the flashbacks of him when he was Vlad Tepes and he's got his suit of armor that looks like flayed muscle, you know, a body with the skin removed just to intimidate his, his enemies. And um, the idea that he was somehow cursed by God because he was enraged that his true love had, had killed herself, thinking that he had died and, um, and seeing what he perceives to be his love reunited. Uh, in the form of, of Mina, played by um, Winona Ryder. Everything about that flick is just so great. And and the prosthetics taken in from the old, ghoulish, stinky monster. Like, that Dracula and vampires in general had always been kind of imagined. These sort of ghouls, these fiends, these disgusting, grotesque things. This is long before the era of Anne Rice. And um, to be able to, in one movie, go from that to the younger, sexier, uh, obviously influenced, typo-negative vampire with the little round glasses and the goatee and the the elegance and the charm. And you've seen, you've seen that version of Dracula sort of move on and influence other characters. You know, I, I talked about maybe Penny Dreadful a while back and their version of Dracula. And you look at um, even the Twilight movies, right? Which probably sprung forth more from Anne Rice and... Lestat, but Lestat, you know, same thing. So, um, Dracula, uh, Gary Oldman's Dracula to me is my favorite. Um, and that's not to take away from the all time great like Bela Lugosi or Christopher Lee or anyone else who has played the role, but it's really hard to beat it's Gary Oldman at anything, you know. I mean, that guy's got a range that I would even say surpasses Daniel Day Lewis. He's just 
absolutely stutter at everything he does, from Sid Vicious to Jim Gordon to Dracula. I don't think there's anything that Gary Oldman can't do and nail 100%. And so for all those reasons and more, my favorite Dracula is going to be Gary Oldman and Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Next question. David A.L. Venable asks, how about this? What do you recommend for a person wanting to break into the industry during the height of a pandemic? Should they wait it out or should they try and get whatever gigs they can? So our friend of the show, David A.L. Venable, asked, you know, what can you do during this pandemic if you're trying to break in, in the, into this industry? And that's, man, that is a great question because um, this coronavirus is exactly as they say it's novel. And my experience is that uh, even those who claim to be experts, those who are positioning themselves to be the authority on what uh, the what safe measures can be put in place and the enforcement of those measures. Even those people, in my experience, are learning as they go. And we're all learning as we're going. And it's extraordinarily hard to coordinate and enforce. And you almost have to... Uh, uh, I think last episode we talked about multiplicity, which is a fantastic... Michael Keaton film, you almost have to be that guy. You've got to be the person who can split yourself into like 20 of yous just to try to keep tabs of everything because otherwise you're entrusting someone else to carry the load of which is brand new and it's and it's extraordinarily difficult, which all is a long-winded way of saying that work is going to be a risk. I mean, and that's true for every industry, but in film it's a risk. You know, getting a job right now in film means that you are taking the risk that you're in close-ish proximity with people. And if you're on a show like a show I run that has a lot of um, different policies and procedures in place, your risk might be mitified, mitigated in some way, but it's still, it is still a risk. So how does one break in? Well, the, to me, the way you break in is the way you break in regardless, which is to say you Get work and you make connections and you try to do work in the field that you want to do. And it and that doesn't mean that you like when I was a young filmmaker, I wanted to direct and sort of make ends meet. I started learning production and then I just found that I had a, a calling to working as a producer. And, you know, 12, almost 13 years down the line, it's, um, you know, it's it's sort of something I've carved out to my, uh, for a career for myself. But. You don't want to skew too far away from what your passion is because it's really hard to circle back down the line, right? Like if you want to be a director, you may not want to be doing location scouting. I mean, which is not to say that location managers haven't become directors, but there's just some there's some fields that lend themselves more easily than others. And if you want to be an auteur, then being in a one of the creative fields, like maybe maybe a production designer might be a different field you could get into if you just want to get work, you know, getting in the art department somehow. But um, it's usually writer directing, maybe art direction. That's kind of the 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 departments that you m- could more easily transition from. So, um, do you wait? Do you? I, you know, I I think you get whatever gigs you can and you take the risk. You know, be very safe. Uh, you have to you have to weigh the pros and cons as whether your your personal safety 
is worth risking for your your personal passion. But um, the sad part is because film was halted and it's just now starting to get back to work, there may still be people who opt out, who say, yeah, I'll just take three months off, two months off, whatever. If you're frugal enough in film and you're good with your money, it's it's feasible that you could do that. And so what that means is that there might be doors open that wouldn't normally be open. Because certainly I think once we get back in the full swing of things and maybe get a handle over this virus and this infection, at least as it relates on set, I think you're going to see an influx of people like in a way you've never seen. And um, those people who may be opting to take some time off may not be so keen. And so it's worth it to try to get a leg up while you can now. And um, as as someone who wants to work as a director, I would recommend trying to take this opportunity to get on other people's sets, and particularly in the art design or storyboarding or writing or just something that's creative um, that might allow you the opportunity to to go down that creative path and to make connections now so that when everyone floods back to the industry, you've you've got a little bit of a foothold in but again it's a personal choice and I, it is a risk just like any other job but we all got to work and unfortunately the government doesn't really care about us no matter who's in office so what that means is if you're if the if if you have the option between working as like a an uber driver or like um you know uh fucking a, con- a waiter or a convenience store worker or a uh, in retail, if you if you gotta if you're gonna be forced into some labor you don't like, and you're gonna be risking your life and your health doing that, you might as well risk your life doing what you love, if you're comfortable with it. Um, from a, a a purely career-driven motivation, I'd say jump in feet first. From an from a health perspective, it's a risk, man. I mean, if you're on a real set, if you're on a set with a budget. It might the being on set might be one of the safer places for you to be because there are so many procedures and policies in place. But you know, most of us don't start on bigger shows. So most of us start on little indies that wouldn't have the means to really properly keep people safe. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get people wearing masks. But um Soul Search, you know, find the right answer for you. And if you're okay with the risk, then I'd say yes. Go take advantage of people starting to come back to work and see if you can't get into a slot that maybe wouldn't always normally be open for you. Christoph Nedek asks, are we experiencing the death of the movie theater? Do you think movie theaters will be able to survive this shutdown? So our friend Christoph from the Regrettable Century, we had his brother Jason on the other day, he asked a really good question about the death of the movie theater and whether or not they'll survive. And this is, uh, we've gotten versions of questions of this before and... um, I don't know how to answer it properly. I mean, you know, uh, these businesses are often, you know, like the AMCs that's like foolishly opening up and like not even spacing people, you know, that they're going to do their, what they're going to do. And there'll be people who will buy the tickets. Um, I think that the, all that the pandemic has done is highlight a problem that already existed within theaters. And that is that the theater experience is not the optimal way to watch a movie any longer. Um, Most theaters are crowded. They are loud. People are constantly talking. They're always on their fucking phones. You know, 
the the pop the food uh, available sucks or on the con or you go the flip side right you go to those super bougie theaters with like the reclining chair and like the wine and the 10 you know ten dollar popcorn and just like everything is so gourmet and that to me is fine on the occasion but that's also not really the movie going experience either it's just like sucks some of the soul away from it which is one of the reasons why i've always liked alamo draft house so much because it kind of straddled that line between offering an ex- offering an experience that you really enjoy and enhances your movie going I guess to beat a term to death, your movie going experience, it really enhances that it enhances what you're watching. Not everyone feels that way. Certainly some people are distracted by the food and, you know, people chewing on pizzas and, you know, certainly you could look at some of Alamo draft houses, hiring practices and the way that they treat their staff. And there's plenty of things that are, that could be improved upon there. But if we're just take all the social political aspect of it away and just focus on, what is the best movie-going experience? It's like something like Alamo or like in LA, I'm really lucky. There's like the Egyptian, there's the New Beverly. There's a bunch of like smaller independent theaters that maintain some of that aura that, that theaters used to have even when I was a kid, you know, before the big massive chains took it over and just bastardized the whole process. Those kind of chains, those things that don't really add to the experience, they have a shelf life. Because at a certain point, their greed supersedes the desire to put up with a, a lesser experience. So, you know, like I'll give you a great example. In pro wrestling, the WWE um, airs on Monday. And every football season, they lose a little bit of their audience. And it never comes back. Just, you know, some will, of course. But but Monday night football comes around and, and just a percentage of the audience leaves and just never comes back because the, the product is not compelling enough to come back, right? Most people stick around because they always have. And once you break a habit, what is it, like 66 days to, to form or break a habit? Once you break the habit, sometimes you just don't see the value in coming back to it. So I think that there may be something of that to theaters as well. We've been away from theaters for four or five months now. And maybe longer for those of us who are smart. And you go back to like an AMC or a Cinemark or whatever those really crummy chains are. And and they just it just sucks. Just the whole experience sucks. And you could just sit at home and watch a movie that uh, on your own terms, with your own food, in your own comfy, quiet environment. And, and you know, TVs are so cheap now, relatively speaking. Um I don't know. I, I don't know if it will be the death of the movie uh, theater. I think that a lot, just like any other industry, a lot of them are going to fail. I've always assumed that the next evolution in movie theaters is that the streaming services and the studios will gobble them up. You know, I think Netflix is already flirting with the idea of um, next Netflix-owned theaters so that they can have a viewing center for their some of their more prestigious films. And I think that you'll see a little bit of that, that linearness that sort of comes with the means of production from the movie going, the movie making to the movie distribution to the movie projection. I think it's much more likely to see some of that. So I, I don't think theaters will die per se, but I think that we'll get a, um, it'd be one of those things that's probably reserved for specialty things like the big giant, um, big giant uh, um, superhero films and things like that, which I think you also asked about whether or not, 
whether or not superhero films will survive. And it's the same thing. That's just like the theaters. Um, they will they will always be a spectacle that people will be willing to to fork over money for because they grew up with it or because it reminds them of a, a simpler time or maybe they genuinely like it. But I feel like superhero movies have sort of reached their pinnacle with Endgame. I'm not saying that that's like a, a, the, the bee's knees of films. There's definitely better comic book movies out there. But in terms of like a very satisfying conclusion to 10 years, 11 years of Marvel, I think it's already hit that point. And once again, I guess if the next batch of movies are amazing, it'll draw people in. But people have had four months away from Marvel movies for the most part. Will they go back? I have no interest in it. I don't I don't really know that how many people will. So I don't ever think that they will die. I don't really think the movie theater experience will die. But I do think that it's going to become more and more niche and specialized. And people will move on to other forms of entertainment. And um, hopefully it, the, the true movie-going experience in a theater won't be completely lost. And some of these more independent theaters can, can find a way to, um, to brave through these rough waters. Sam V. Blair asks... What would your ideal horror movie be? And we're going to end it with, with again, our top listener, Sam V. Blair, the man who can ask two questions because he's just that loyal listener. And the question is, what's your ideal horror movie? And uh, a good one. <laughs> you know, um, me and Ophelia were talking the other day about the movie Identity, which was produced by a friend of mine. And um, virtually one location, a hotel, very cool twist. You know, stellar cast. You know, it's not a cheap movie, but it, it was a movie where the story really carried the film and not just spectacle, not just effects, not just boobs and blood, right? Which is, there's nothing wrong with, but it's just, you hear this term thrown around a lot called like, there's almost a disdain for the term elevated horror. And I think really all that that term means is that thought was put into this movie. It wasn't, treated as something that's just there for schlock like i i have met directors who are like oh i'll make a horror for me uh, i'll make a horror movie because it will be my stepping stone to go make real movies you see this all the time people who even actors who have been in these these horror movies because it's the only thing that will hire them and they can they make a living in the convention world but they don't really have any true passion or love for not only the genre as it's existed in the past but in ways that it can exist going forward and there's exceptions, obviously, Blumhouse and Orion and A24. They've all done these really, really compelling and amazing films that have come out recently and have gotten not only acclaim within the horror industry, but also like the movie-going industry at large. And um, and I not everything has to be art house, but I've said this on the show many times. The best horror is the kind of movie that can represent the anxieties of the time in which it's made. Which is why slashers in the Reagan era of America thrived, and why, um, you know, during Nazi Germany, werewolf movies were all the vague, uh, all the all in vogue because um, Nazis were sort of parodied as wolves within um, comic strips and and the like. And um, you know, when we moved into the post nuclear bomb age, the atomic age, mad scientists and technology gone amok, and you've seen it over and over again. These films, you know. They they tap into something that is primal for us right now. 
It's also why a lot of times reboots don't work because it's a different time. And, and, and sometimes lightning is simply just in a bottle. So what's an ideal horror movie? Well, what are some of the anxieties that we're dealing with right now? The pandemic, right? And I don't even know that it's necessarily the disease that has people as anxious. It's the being trapped feeling. It's the feeling like your freedoms are being taken away from you. Some people believe this. Some people believe this, right? It's the idea that your neighbor is going to make you ill intentionally or un- or uncaringly, right? It's the fear and the anxiety that the government doesn't care about your well-being, that you're off, you're left to your own devices. I mean, it's 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 a I would if I could boil down the anxiety of of the culture right now, I would call I would boil it down to two words: justifiable paranoia. Because I think that that in in deep down in the recesses of our gut, that's the part that's creating the anxiety. We don't know. We can't trust. We feel trapped. We feel hopeless. And and the virus to me is only a small portion of that. I think it's really the more way our neighbors around us, the way our leaders fail us. It's the way there doesn't seem to be hope. That this will that you know we say we say this all the time. I think I said it earlier in the podcast. When things get back to normal, we don't know what that's going to mean, and we don't really even know what that will be or or how that will be. All we know is that we want things to not be as they are right now. The sense of being trapped and hopeless and and financial burden and health burden and the, like the question like David's question earlier like hey I, I moved to LA and I want to break into the film industry but there's a fucking pandemic going on things like that like these are the anxieties that people feel and 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 even when you get down even you boil it down even further to like no one knows anything about this disease really no they, we have an idea we throw some ideas to against the wall in hopes that it reduces the risk, but we don't really know. Every day it feels like there's new information, which means there's no information. It's the distrust of everything around us. You know, one of our buddies on the show, Jude Walker, one time described to me what being in an earthquake was like a massive earthquake. I've had small tremors and what have you, but it's it's where you don't even trust that the ground will be solid underneath your feet. And, and the level of paranoia that that would cause with nothing that you have, you know, your entire life learned to trust and to believe in and rely on when all of those things are ripped away from you. And it's in that moment that that justifiable paranoia rears its, its ugly, ugly head. And that, that right there to me right now, if you're a young filmmaker and you want to write a script, don't take the easy way out and just write about a pandemic. I mean, we've seen those movies. Write the story about the person who's trapped inside their home, who doesn't know that their friend down the road doesn't know if they have their best interest in heart with the, when it comes to their health, who's, who's feeling the financial burden of not being able to go to work or worse, having to go to work and knowing that at any moment you could come home ill or you could infect a loved one. You know, how many real life horror stories have you heard of people who's who have had losses within their family and they can't be there to mourn them because of the distancing? Right. That is a very, very rich and explosive element that you can introduce into a film and exploit and capture something that is being felt right now. 
that to me is the most ideal horror movie for today. Is it the ideal for all time? I mean, the, the it's the same principle because that's the amazing thing about horror is that it is a reflection of the times. You know, when we did last episode, we talked about the society, the spectacle. We talked about how, um, you know, is art a mirror to, ha- to, sh- to hold up to the world or is it a hammer in which to shape it? Horror does both and in its in its perfect, most purest, idealist form. It holds the mirror up to society. It is, uh, it is the face of our fears being broadcast back to us, reflected back to us in that mirror. And then it takes your entire reality and it smashes it until you tap into the most primordial, primal id fear within you and it makes you confront it. And that is great horror. That is an ideal horror movie. The genre doesn't matter. The blood count, the the body count, the blood, the the nudity, none of that shit matters. That. If you can tap into that and you can pull that out of someone, you've got yourself a horror movie that will stand the test of time. And I will stand and die on that hill to my dying breath. So that's my answer. I, you guys can tell me I'm full of shit. That's totally fine. Go to our Facebook or go to our Instagram. Find me on Twitter at Dave Oscuro. And until next time, guys, I, I said this is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode. It's late here. I'm going to try to get this episode up today on Monday the uh, 17th. But it's late. But I will do my best. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to me ramble on. Normally, I, I have time to watch a movie and get a guest and all that stuff. And just the next couple of weeks are going to be a bit wonky. I got another couple of weeks here in Georgia to wrap up. And then me and Jude are going to hit the road driving back to L.A. So we're going to have to figure out where we'll stop, where we'll be in the world to record. But we'll, we'll figure it all out. We won't miss an episode one way or another. I will get you guys something. I hope you enjoy this. Please send me your feedback. I love it. I thrive on it. This is kind of a one-man show right now. and um, and and But I never feel alone because I always feel like I have you guys with me in my little virtual corner. So thank you again. Listen to us every Monday mostly on uh, iTunes and Spotify and SoundCloud for all you crazy mumble rappers out there. And until next time, remember to uh, – to give something back into the world to make it a little bit more rich than where you found it. So till next time, guys, adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Ad Astra Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. 